That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, available on Amazon and everywhere. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Perez, and it's been a little while uh, since we've done one of these. Um, it, I've had the, uh, I guess, the the summertime chills. I don't even know if that's what you would call it, where I'm, I'm doing way too much chilling come summertime. But um, in this new one back, I'm very happy to be joined by Mike Termat. He is the uh, he's running for the candidate for Libertarian Party presidential nominee. Mike, thank you for for joining me. You are actually the first. Thank you. Presidential nominee with you. Yeah, you're the first presidential nominee of, of any presidency. That I, I've had on the podcast, so thanks. Well, for in the first. summer, because you've been chilling. Uh, I have not been chilling in the summer. I've been busy, so I'm I'm glad to spend a little time with with you today. Thank you. Yeah, what um you know what's the process been like? Uh, you know, running for you know the you know running for a, 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 to be president of the of the LP. I mean, how does that? Well, not president yeah. of the LP, president of the United States via the Libertarian the, Party. The nominee so. of the LP, yeah. that's right. Yeah. It's uh, it's a lot of work and a lot of fun. Uh, so in that sense, it's a, it's a good process. The Libertarian Party has an open convention. We have a convention in uh, May uh, of the presidential cycle year. So in that sense, it's not all that different from what the Republicans and the Democrats do that a lot of your viewers uh, will be more familiar with. But it's an open convention, which is to say the delegates are not pre-pledged to one candidate or another. So we have a 900 or a thousand delegates there. Uh, and, and so the process is you spend the, the year or two preceding that going around to the various conventions and other Libertarian Party events and introducing yourself to the delegates and letting them know what kind of campaign uh, you will run on the other side of the nomination in the general election cycle and a little bit about yourself and your philosophy. And people will choose who they think will be the best representative uh, for the party. And I have, as you might imagine, some pretty strong views on this. And and so uh, I give the party a, a good choice, I believe, to represent the party. Have, have you um, have you always been uh, a libertarian or like, Capital L Libertarian part of the party, or you know, did you did you dabble in other uh, political? I did parties? dabble, as a matter of fact, more than dabble. And, and most members of Libertarian Party uh, were at some point in their wayward lives members of of other parties. Uh, I grew up as a Republican. Uh, I was in the banking industry for a number of years in in the uh, in the eighties and then the early nineties. Uh, I went to graduate school as an economist and a very free market, uh, open market environment. I was very lucky in that sense. I was an economist uh, for the White House for a couple of years and for other international agencies. I had my under, own uh, Under who? Yeah. And, uh, who were you, uh, uh, I worked for the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. I was a civil servant. So he was my boss's 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 boss. So it wasn't like he was calling me into the Oval Office to say, Mike, uh, what should we do today? Uh, that wasn't it. But I was a civil servant in the Office of Management and Budget. And that was uh, a good experience for a young conservative economist. Remember, he was the president who famously said, read my lips, no new taxes. And 
when he went back on that pledge and agreed to not only new taxes, but new spending, that was a real deflating moment uh, mm. for uh, a young economist. And uh, I, I did spend some years uh, in and out of the Republican Party during the 90s after that. But it was in the late 90s that a buddy of mine said, you're a libertarian. And I said, I don't say mean things to you. Why would you say such a horrible thing to me? And uh, it, it, it proved to be uh, true. I was introduced to the Libertarian Party because I was not all that keen on participating in the culture wars. Uh, I'm personally socially conservative, but I don't believe that uh, the way that we feel about the, the how society should should develop is the kind of thing that should be legislated. It's not the kind of thing the government should be involved in. And so I found myself uh, eventually registering as a, as a libertarian. Wow. Well, I, I, uh, when did I switch my party? So um, when I was in New York um, some time back when I used to live in New York, I, uh, I registered as a Democrat as like uh, kind of a joke. And I was like, look, I've, I've been pissing off my, uh, my liberal friends so much here. I want to piss off my, uh, my friends on the right <laughs> and, and my friends on the right didn't care. Like they, no, no one gave a shit. I, I have good friends on the left. Well, That's right. too bad because I love pissing off friends. Uh, yep. It sounds like you pissed off some of them for so good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although all the right ones, I, I think I, I pissed off, but then um, when I moved to New Jersey, uh, one of the things you have to do, obviously you have to go to the, the DMV and you have to get a new license. And it was uh such a long, painful, stereotypical experience. Oh my goodness! Uh, yes. We made a we made an appointment. We got there early for the appointment, and then I think it was like two or three hours later, my wife and I we were finally uh, we were finally New Jerseyans. Seen. Yeah, and <laughs> when you get up to that uh, to that booth, they uh, you're able to <laughs> to select which political party you want to join, and mm -hmm. it was like right there. It was like an invitation. It's like okay. After this experience, I think it's time to join the the LP and to to make it a uh, official. That so that's, boy. And, and that yeah. is kind of a strange thing, isn't it? That you're yep. there to first of all, it's strange that you get a driver's license from the state. I think that's just weird naturally. But then that they ask you your political affiliation, it's like the state, my affiliation, and cars. Somehow these right. three things have come together in this weird way. So uh, I appreciate your your awkward experience. I I had a New Jersey driver's license myself for. Uh, a brief period. I lived in Morristown. Oh, okay. In like, uh, I want to say 85, 86, 87 in there for a couple of years. The, the, this, the legend of Mike Termott, uh, is, it still haunts Morristown, New Jersey. Like that. I don't know if you can go back. I don't know if you can ever go back, but, um, <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, you hear about, you know, the libertarian party, it's that it's the biggest third, you know, uh, it's the biggest third party, you know. Yeah, uh, by far. Uh, it's a lot smaller than the, the big two, but a lot bigger than whatever is in fourth place. Right. So so I'm wondering, you know, like what what do you, you know, what do you think that you can accomplish through the Libertarian Party as opposed to, you know, uh, one of the, uh, the two major parties? I think a lot. Uh, I think that Americans are ready. Polling data show, for example, that Americans are ready for a third party open to the idea because of uh, a lot of things, including frustration with the Republican Party and, and frustration with the Democratic Party. And I think 
I think most people understand why that is. Uh, it's a combination of several things. Those parties have left behind their ideologies that they used to represent a generation ago. You don't really find many uh, Republicans who are actually fiscally conservative uh, anymore. You don't really find Democrats that are in a fundamental sense socially liberal anymore. If you're a member of the Democratic Party, you you must fall into line. And if you don't, your obligation seems to be to go around canceling each other. Uh, the Democratic Party, nor the Republican Party, they don't seem all that interested in standing up for the First Amendment. They don't seem to want the government out of the idea of censorship. And both parties seem wholly on board with projecting military power around the world and spending whatever money it takes uh, to do that. So in that sense, I think a lot of people are frustrated with the parties no longer representing what it is that they thought that they represented. Uh, certainly, if if you were uh, uh, an anti-war Democrat 40 years ago, right, I think that's as long as you'd have to go back to find a real anti-war yeah. Democrat. That party has left you. And, and similarly, on the Republican side, if you were a fiscal conservative. So I think that that the Libertarian Party is well poised to play a major role in American politics next year. There's a huge opportunity, not to mention the fact that the leadership of each of those uh, parties is a little uh, weird. Uh, so, yeah, to yeah. say the to say the least, yeah, yeah. Nice. it's a family show here, Lou. So I'm trying yeah. to be nice about it, but <laughs> it's that's a little strange. So I, I do believe that Americans are open to an anti-war message. They're at, open to fiscal conservatism and they're open to actual social uh, liberalism in the sense that Americans have a libertarian streak that leans toward us being tolerant of each other, not only in a political sense, but in a social sense. And I think that Americans want to be represented by policies that reflect their values. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of Americans are frustrated by the fact that the simple dignity of being able to raise your kids the way you want to seems to be slipping away from them. So we're the party that represents uh, school choice and parental involvement and driving what it is that school boards do with their children during the day. We're the party that represents uh, a foreign policy that reflects your values in a non-aggressive sense. So I believe that our party is the party that needs to fight our way back toward the Constitution, that needs to fight our way toward a set of policies that reflects American values. And I think that Americans are open to that. Yeah, I sort of look at, you know, um, the Libertarian Party as, you know, while it you know, obviously, like you said, it's not as big as the other as the other two parties. It also there's also a strength in that in that you get to be uh, a little bit more radical. You get to say things that you know point out uh, what the the two parties have so much in, you know in common. I, I remember yeah. uh, they used to say, I, I, you would hear this a lot. It's like, oh, what is a libertarian? A libertarian is a a Republican who spokes weed. Um, and then I, I saw it online. I, I saw it online. It's like, no, what is a Democrat? A Democrat is a Republican that spokes weed, which I think is a lot more in line than uh, makes a lot more sense. If you, if you, you know, sort of look around, um, you know, yeah. one thing I want to, want to ask you, but you brought up, you know, not wanting, to, not wanting to fight like these, uh, these culture wars. And it's, it, it is, a, I, I guess it's a little tough not to fight culture wars when, you know, 
when the government itself is currently waging what seems like, you know, culture yeah. war. Uh, so, you know, how do you, how do you, do you have to get into that fight first before, you know, before retreating or declaring a, you know, a victory? I, I think where libertarians draw the line on the culture wars is when it touches public policy. Right. So uh, I'm a big believer, for example, I'm a big believer uh, in the idea of separating science from the state. You know, we have a, a long history in the United States Americans, I think, naturally buy into the idea of separation of church and state. It's one of the founding principles, indeed, why people move to this continent, why our nation was put together, why our constitution exists, is to protect your right to worship any way you want, or not at all, uh, without influence uh, from your government. And I believe that we need to honor our First Amendment in the same vein with regard to science. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, I think that Americans are open to the idea that we need to pursue our lives any way that we want to, and that the government's interpretation of science, uh, the government's interpretation of how you should live your life, what you should do with your body, I think that we recognize that as just fundamentally inappropriate. The idea, uh, however you feel about these issues. So, for example, however you feel about drugs, that doesn't mean the government ought to have the right to tell you you have to take a vaccine or you can't use marijuana or you can't use uh, some other drug. However you feel about the issue, that it's just inappropriate. And I think that we have learned <clears throat> that the government is just not good at uh, understanding these issues. It's not good at disseminating information. It's not good at separating itself from weird interests, big pharma in some cases, as we learned with the vaccines, uh, that they government officials push some sometimes some pretty weird ideas and we'd be better off as a society, both in terms of social development and economics and in making decisions for ourselves if the government would stay out of it. That's just one example, but I think you get my point. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, um, I think libertarians have, have positioned are in a really good position as you, you know, as you said earlier, and just look at, um, just, you know, technologically, uh, speaking the amount of, uh, uh, the amount of reach that these ideas have now versus, you know, 20, you know, 40 years ago. And, you know, during the, um, you know, during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, uh, it was great to, that the, you know, the loudest voices that I was, that, that I was able to, to hear were often from, you know, the libertarian side, the libertarian, the ANCAP side. Um, That's right. And it was so, and it was so important that those things were that those messages were were getting out. And you know, you're talking about like the first and amendment. not enough, yeah. arguably, arguably not enough. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and and now, I mean, just with the the revelations with you know the Twitter files, and then the uh, what's happening now with the uh, the I don't know the the unraveling of um, Facebook, and I guess the the term is jawboning, where um, the state will you know, put pressure on a, uh, on a private, private actors to, you know, take down, to censor stuff. Uh, yeah. 
it's uh it's it's pretty astonishing the you know the lengths well it's not it's not astonishing but the, the lengths that the government will go to uh you know censor uh important you know information it i i think you're right i think it is astonishing in the sense that we had all believed that the government would not do that if you went back a generation ago i think the vast majority of americans the vast majority of us believe that the government would not go so far and uh while it is true that a generation ago a number of government officials would it seems now just accepted modus operandi you know there's there there are just no government officials on either side who are willing to throw themselves on the tracks in front of that train whether you're a republican or a democrat it really just seems to mean that you want the type of censorship or the type of government regulation that drives the culture war in a certain direction it's not a matter of well the government shouldn't be involved in the culture wars at all. You don't see uh, very many people from either of the Republican or Democratic parties uh, saying that. So I agree with you. I think it it is astonishing. I think that the parties have merged together in this sense. And I think that libertarians, uh, you know, remember, Lou, libertarians, we are the philosophical descendants of the people that put together the Constitution, that put together this nation, and did so for the singularly legitimate purpose of protecting your liberty, protecting your rights. So I think that it is up to us to fight for those liberties, to fight for your right, to say whatever you want without being censored, for you to live your life by your own standards. If you're waiting for a Republican to lead that fight, I think you're waiting for something that's not going to happen. I would say the same thing on the Democratic side. So in that sense, I think that Americans are ready for our message and ready for a campaign like the one that, that we are waging right now. Some, something that I found, too, um, with the Libertarian Party is its willingness to um, for a coalition building. And I've seen that. Were you at a uh, pork fest up in up in New Hampshire? Yes, I was at pork fest. And to your point, uh, our campaign was one of the sponsors of the Libertarian Party uh, sponsored Rage Against War, uh, the, the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington some months ago. That was another coalition coalition building effort. And uh, I will be participating in an anti-war rally at the United Nations this coming weekend, August 6th, uh, which is a, a an effort among uh, a coalition of 20 different organizations. So, yeah, to your point, libertarians are all about uh, single-issue coalitions to help get the message out. Yeah, because I'm um, up at Porkfest. Um uh, uh, RFK Jr. Uh, gave a talk. Uh, uh, Vivek, I, I, I always blank on his last name. He's also Ramaswamy. Running. Ramaswamy. Uh, he was up there too. And, it, you know, it was interesting to see, like, I mean, there, you know, so much about RFK Jr. That's just not, not libertarian. Um, right. And yet, you know, the libertarians were at least welcoming a, uh, uh, a conversation there. I mean, I personally think that, you know, what libertarians like so much about RFK Jr. is that the possibility of him, you know, somehow bringing down the Democratic Party. Um, and I think there it's that kind of, um, you know, that uh, that little bit of, of chaos or demolition yeah. that I think a lot of, uh, uh, you know, libertarians are, are, are into. 
I, I agree with you there. Uh, anyone who's willing to run up against Joe Biden inside the Democratic Party is going to get a look from a lot of people, including libertarians. And of course, a lot of the libertarians like the fact that he stands up against the government machinery that wanted to shove the vaccine down our throat. Uh, so a lot of people appreciate that very much. Where there's a difference between most libertarians and, and RFK Jr. in any number of areas, I, I think that he fundamentally is a good government kind of guy. I think he means well, but he is not a shrink the government kind of guy. He's a, a fellow who believes that you can make the government work better. So I, I think that he spends a lot of effort talking about how to stop corporations from capturing the regulatory process so that it can work better. So the government can mm-hmm. do a better job of knuckling under uh, corporate America to work the way that he would want it to. And that, of course, is, uh, I believe, a completely inefficient way to run an economy to have the government dictating what corporations ought to do, which is fundamentally where he is. He's a bit of a statist. Uh, I do think he he means well. And of course, the other thing about uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. that is a little bit different from most libertarians is that he is not merely anti-mandate as far as the vaccines go, but he's truly, I believe, anti-vaccine, whereas a libertarian would tell you, you do you. You know, if if you love the vaccine, uh, go knock yourself out, have 12 of them. Uh, We want the government to be out of the science of telling us whether the vaccines are a good idea or not, whereas he, I think, just fundamentally believes that you know, the vaccines are, are a bad idea. And that's a, that's a bit of a difference. And, and when we, when we talk about vaccines, are we talking specifically about the, um, you the know, COVID regime? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of rubella. Um, so I'm very happy that, you know, there you so go as an example, right? Yeah. Not, not a fan of, uh, not, not a fan of, uh, of, of that one. Um, you know, one, one of the interesting things that at Porkfest, it was a little bit of a controversy is that, uh, RFK Jr. had requested, at least when he when he spoke in the uh, what was, I guess, essentially like a big barn um, uh, that uh, nobody in the audience be armed. And if anybody's right. ever been to New Hampshire, let alone Porkfest, <laughs> um, I guess the way to describe Porkfest is like just imagine like a, like a bunch of hippies with with sidearms you know just guns right. on the, you know guns uh on their uh, on their sides or, um, or in my case uh short hair and wearing it on your ankle right, but yes yeah. ev- you know everyone is going to be carrying uh all over the place and 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 i get it you know with yeah. his family history uh, i understand the the paranoia but he's going to have to wake up and realize that the world is actually safer when people are allowed to carry when they want to yeah so um, on on the uh, uh, so you ca- so you were carrying on your ankle. Were you open carrying on the ankle or concealed? Uh, no, I like to carry concealed. Uh, I, I find it. Um, I've had bad experiences carrying openly. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. I was a police officer for eleven and a half years until about eighteen months ago. It was my second career in public policy and public service, and so there were many occasions when I would carry open. Wearing, for example, uh, a training uniform as a police officer. And uh, that was sometimes mistaken for uh, not being a police officer, Mm. carrying open, which at the time in Florida, of course, was illegal. Uh, 
And, and that would cause problems. And I also noticed it made people uh, uncomfortable. And so rather than prompting anyone I bumped into to call 911, uh, which happened more than once, uh, I learned to carry uh, concealed and, and I'm comfortable with, with that. Yeah, you know, I uh, so I, I support, you know, open carry, concealed carry. Um, but I think, yeah, from like a safety point, um, I am surprised that I that I haven't heard more of um, incidents of people open carrying being confronted by people concealed carrying because um, like there was there was there was an what was it? There was an incident. I forget how long ago, but basically like this guy. Uh, decided to, uh, he was, I think, open carrying his rifle either outside of a school or near like a bus, near like a, a school bus stop or something like that. Right. And people would, you know, would take pictures and, and report him. And I believe, I believe, you know, he was within his legal rights to open carry. Right. But <clears throat> I'm just right. thinking as a, you know, as a parent um, whose, you know, kids will be going to school one day. If I saw it, it might make oh, you nervous. Yeah, it might might make you nervous, or you know, perhaps even you know, confrontational. Uh, you know, and so uh, the, the, I think our society will get used to open carry over yeah. time. I just think that as a cultural matter, uh, we have not yet returned to a day, uh, perhaps like a couple of hundred years ago, when it would not have been uh, so unusual uh, to open carry. So I think that we will get there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in that sense, I have every respect for those who, who do uh, open carry because I think they're making a contribution toward getting society more comfortable with that. But, yeah, I hear you. Uh, you know, the, the mass shootings that we see at schools, uh, occasionally a church or a club, they're so disturbing and so heavily covered by the media that it naturally... Uh, causes concern when you uh, are confronted uh, by the imagery, by the sight of a weapon, and, and you have to think about it uh, because we're not used to it. Mm -hmm. So I completely understand it. That's the reason that I carry concealed. It's also the reason, by the way, I carry concealed all the time. I don't like to be unarmed because you don't know, you know, when that time will come. And I, I don't want to be that you know, retired cop who decided that day not to carry. And all of a sudden, uh, that's the moment that you wish that uh, that retired cop uh, had been carrying. So is, I, I think yeah. we'll get used to it over time. Is it, um, it, it must be easier. I mean, as far as, you know, uh, uh, going state by state, it must be easier having, being a retired police officer, being able to uh, to carry, right? Um, is, is it something, are you good yeah. in all 50 states? Like, how does that work? Yeah, legally speaking, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, legally, I'm allowed to carry uh, anywhere. Uh, federal law says that if you were a, uh, a police officer for at least 10 years, uh, you can carry anywhere, notwithstanding what state laws say. Interestingly, as a libertarian, I've got a real problem with federal supremacy, I've got a problem with the federal government shoving laws down the throats of individual states. But as a libertarian, I do also believe that the states are misguided, uh, both in a constitutional sense and, and, and as well as a liberty ethics uh, sense in limiting our rights to carry a weapon. So you got a lot of that, you know, juxtaposition mm -hmm. going on. But uh, I do believe that we have the right to carry, and uh, I'm 
I'm grateful that that at least the state isn't isn't telling me that I can't. And uh, you know, how did you how did you decide <clears throat> to get into law enforcement? Um, because uh, it it's uh, you know obviously in um, you know anybody who's hung hung around you know libertarians enough it it, it libertarians can come come off as anti cop. Uh, so, you know, how do you, uh, you know, what inspired you to, you know, go the way that you went? (laughs) Well, I always wanted to be a police officer. Uh, I initially, the first time I took, uh, an exam for entrance was with the Washington DC metropolitan PD, uh, back in 89 or 90 when I was in grad school. And I just decided, uh, that uh, I couldn't afford it. Uh, I, wanted to raise a family. There were things that needed to be done. And I just didn't think that it made sense for me to become a police officer. So I stayed in school uh, and developed a a career as an economist. I wound up teaching at three different universities and had a a very rewarding career. How old are you? You, you've, I am you've 111. Because, yes. dude, you've, you've lived quite a lot. You keep bringing up the 80s, and I'm like, holy shit, how old yeah, is Yeah, I'm 111. Uh, I'll uh-huh. tell you about the 50s later. No, uh, I was born in 61. Okay. Uh, I am 62 years old. And so, yeah, I was a professional economist for more than a couple of decades, if you include the commercial banking this uh, is my career. this is my way of saying you look great. You look great. Well, bless uh, your heart. Uh, I appreciate that. You look good too, by the way, Lou. But uh, <laughs> I, I am think not. That you've 62. got the advantage of uh, being younger. <laughs> um, I have no yeah, excuses. So yeah. When I went into the police academy, uh, I was I turned forty nine in the police academy. Oh wow! Yeah, fifty percent of my class had at least one parent younger than I was. Put it that way. Wow. Um, I worked as a cop from age 49 to 60 until about 18, uh, about 20 months ago now. And that was a very uh, rewarding uh, experience. Uh, But as I was mentioning, when I first took the exam back in like 89 or 90 and just decided against it, in my head, I was really putting it off more than deciding against it. So I put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. And then, you know, fully 20 years later, you kind of realize if you put it off any longer, you're going to get past the point of no return. Right. So, you know, I was very healthy uh, at that age. I was very lucky. Um, and, and so it was not physically difficult. Uh, there, there are a lot of transitions that are easier to make probably when you're younger than when you're older. But there are big advantages to becoming a police officer as as you get older. Uh, you're less given to making certain types of mistakes that we're all frustrated with officers uh, making. You have a greater appreciation for the balance of power. One of the things that I learned as a police officer is the enormous amount of discretion that officers have over the handling of of, of any one particular case. And so you learn, you are really, as an individual officer, the last, uh, wall against the encroachment of the government. You are the, the the last individual who has a responsibility to stand up for someone's individual rights, not just against crime, which of course is a big reason why people become police officers because they, they want to stand up for your protection against crime, but also against the state, uh, that the state will force itself upon individuals were it not for, uh, e- even worse, 
were it not for police officers uh, limiting their own power, because in so many cases, uh, you have enormous discretion about how how things play out. And uh, were you were you a beat cop? Were you, you know, uh, yeah, I I was on the road. I was on the road for all of the 11 and a half years. Uh, I was fortunate that the police department that I worked for, uh, while not what you would call large at 100 officers, it was also not tiny. And so, uh, you know, we had a little bit of specialization inside of our department. For example, I didn't have to get involved with the war on drugs, which uh, was a good thing for me. Because Yeah, it's pretty convenient for the libertarian cop. <clears throat> not to- well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you say convenient, but it was uh, it would have been a deal breaker. So mm-hmm. in, in that sense, you know, that was very, very uh, fortunate for me. It actually created a situation when, you know, that I could be a, an officer and, and be more or less comfortable uh, about it. But it's it's a form of public service that I had always been interested in. Uh, and I found it a very rewarding experience. It is a tremendous amount of hard work. I have every respect for the men and women with whom I worked and who do the job elsewhere. And I should add that I was very lucky in the sense that I had a good police department. Uh, I, I think that police culture needs a tremendous amount of reform. I spent a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform and changing the way that we manage police officers. But the truth of the matter is that I was lucky that we did not have a lot of the cultural problems, at least certainly not to the extent that uh, that other departments uh, have had. And I know that we're going the right direction, but we have a, a great deal of uh, space yet to cover. We have a, a lot of... Uh, gains yet to be made in terms of improving police culture. Mm-hmm. Now I, uh, so I'm, I'm from New York, uh, originally. Um, and, um, I grew up, I know a lot of, um, a, a lot of cops and, uh, I think one of the, one of the, one of the issues that, that I have, I guess, with, um, policing, at least when, when I was in, in New York is the idea of, uh, serving and protect, you know, I, to serve and protect. But I think it's, it's very difficult to claim that you are protecting if, for example, you look at the gun laws in New York and it's like very much disarming the yeah. citizenry. You know, it's yeah. sort of like I think the first line of defense is self-defense and being able uh, being able to do that. And I agree. You know, so. yeah. And, and we've seen just in the last couple of years how much more difficult uh, it has become, uh, I think, more because of courts than because of changes in uh, policing or changes in uh, legislating. We've seen the courts go the wrong direction on protecting individuals' right to defend themselves. One of the things that you see as a police officer is that a lot of cops have a libertarian streak, just like a lot of Americans do. I I found that most cops, at least the ones that I worked with, most were registered Republicans but had a real libertarian streak in the sense that, uh, you know, a common frustration with the state. You know, we all like to be frustrated with our boss, right? I mean, who doesn't love to complain about his boss once in a while? Well, when you're a cop, that takes the form of, oh, can you believe the, the dumb thing the legislature did, in our case in Tallahassee, the dumb thing that the legislature wants us to do now, or the dumb thing that the city wants us to do now. Uh, and, and, and so I think that cops naturally sort of uh, bristle 
against the silly things that the state wants us to do. And the officers that I worked with were very much pro Second Amendment. That's not the case in a lot of uh, police departments. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, that was a good thing. I think it is a shame that police officers are asked to enforce uh, a regulatory framework that intrudes upon our Second Amendment rights uh, so far. It's, it's really a horrible thing. It is obviously out of the control of police officers what, you know, the legislature decides uh, is a crime. But there is some flexibility and, and there is a, an attitude change that, that matters. And there is local leadership that matters. Uh, you know, our, our uh, city was run by a mayor and by a commission that I think could have done a better job, but at least uh, wasn't as bad as it could have been. And, uh, you know, and, and with that, like the, you know, changes on, on a local level, um, you know, you're, uh, you know, running for the, you know, uh, nomination for uh, Libertarian Party presidential nominee. Um, so it, it, that's going like right to the top. Do you ever do you ever yeah. think of like, oh, maybe I maybe I should start, you know, smaller, like uh, in like small local, like, a, you know, local elections or something like that. What do you what, what are your thoughts on on that? Uh, a lot of the issues that I have personally been involved in, plus my experience in Washington, suggest that I think that my voice makes the most sense at the at the federal level. Having said that, yeah, I do spend a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform uh, because it's, you know, in my experiential wheelhouse. <clears throat> and I also believe that a lot of that can be affected at the federal level. Number one, something I spend a lot of time talking about is sunsetting the war on drugs. Number two, something else I spent a lot of time talking about, is replacing the federal doctrine, court-imposed doctrine of of, uh, qualified immunity with the requirement that police officers carry their own liability insurance like a a, uh, medical doctor would, right? A malpractice uh, policy. Because I think that in the long run, we're going to be a lot better off when we use market forces to impose some accountability on the business of managing police officers. When when that happens, uh, we'll be in a much, much uh, better place. I also think that getting an insurance company involved in providing uh, liability insurance directly to the officer is going to create a third party outside check on the system in a way that local politicians have proven that they are either incapable or unwilling of providing themselves. I I wish that local politicians would do a better job of aligning a police department's values with the values of the overall community. But too often local politicians have demonstrated that they uh, are just unable to, to pull that off sometimes because of political capture Uh, In our case, uh, the police department was an important political force in the town. And I think the mayor just didn't want to ruffle feathers. And in many other cases, local politicians uh, just believe that they're better off with broad statements like back the blue in all cases, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a, a dumb position or the alternative on the left side of defund the police. You know, uh, we're anti-cop, which I think is, similarly uh, unhelpful. Police reform is hard work, and I wish that local politicians would get involved with it. You know, when, when it comes to, uh, 
you know, cops carrying um, insurance policies. Um, I think it's, I think it's really, really interesting. I just wonder, you know, if you look around the country, like, I, you know, I've heard uh, about um, bigger cities where more police are retiring and there aren't enough, you know, new recruits, you know, coming in. So it's sort of, right. how do you, you know, how do you put, you know, something like that, like a policy like that, which, you know, I think on its, uh, you know, on the surface seems like it would, you know, help, it would be a benefit, you know, for overall for, for the citizens. Um, but it might deter more, you know, people from actually wanting to become police. If it's like, oh shit, man, I got to carry insurance and I might get sued if I, you know, if I, uh, you know, do something, you know, or- sure. Yeah, nobody uh, wants to set up a situation where we're threatening that you're going to lose your house if you made a a good faith error at work one day, right? That is not a system that can sustain itself. Nobody, anybody that wanted to do that job would be too dumb to hire. Um, But I do believe in the long run, market forces will straighten this out. It does mean that you'll have to uh, pay officers uh, a little bit more money. Uh, to make up for the cost of the insurance, but cities are going to save money in the sense that they won't be carrying the insurance themselves anymore and that uh, more cases will be off of the city's books or county books or state books and be on the insurance company's uh, books. So there's not that much uh, change in terms of how much money uh, is is involved. But to your point, it would be better off for citizens. I, I think that we would agree that the very idea that if you feel wronged, you can't seek redress in court, that, that is, that's un-American. You know, e- even if you're not correct, but if you think you've been wronged, you deserve a right to have that adjudicated. And, and telling people Well, in the case of medical malpractice, we don't tell people, well, the doctor didn't mean to cut off the wrong toe, right? So suck it up, buttercup. You know, that's not the way this works. Uh, You have a right to seek redress. And if you have a case, you have a case. And if you don't have a good case, you don't have a good case. Uh, But we want the courts to work correctly. And so in that sense, it's just un-American to keep the system the way that it is. In the long run, I believe that police officers will have to be paid a little bit more money to make up for the cost of insurance. I also believe that in the long run, you're going to want police officers to to make more money. I think that you want a system that works more like other businesses, where the best officers get paid more, uh, the mediocre officers get paid less, and the crappy ones get fired. That's the way that we would expect any industry to work. And I think that uh, it'll... It'll be to our benefit when unions finally lose the ability to impose a system whereby which everyone gets paid the same. Yeah, and I, I think it's important too, uh, you know, just looking at the culture at large. So, like, you know, if you look at, you know, take for example a place like like San Francisco, where I believe they 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 instituted a policy where. Uh, uh, I mean, basically it allowed people to shoplift up to like what, $950, right? So it's like, well, well, behind that, behind that policy is a lack of respect for property, right? Or the idea that, you know, property even exists. Um, and right. it's like, well, if that's one of your values, well, then you're just allowing 
you're just setting up a, a, a chaotic world or, you know, yeah. the, uh, the idea that you're going to allow people to, you know, assault one, uh, you know, assault one another and not you right. know, have police get involved. So right. it's sort of like, uh, I mean, w- one of the reasons why I, uh, why we got out of New York, my wife and I, we were living in Brooklyn and uh, I would, you know, I, I would just, you know, hear these, uh, uh, these stories, especially about, you know, on the subway of just like these maniacs kind of doing whatever the hell they want. And, uh, at, and, uh, I, what I was fearful, fearful for was, you know, if my wife was riding the subway, especially with our child, right. That if she was ever, uh, attacked, yeah, uh, yeah. for one, the police <clears throat> might not even be there, but even worse than that, the men on the subway car wouldn't step in to help her out. And I feel they like- don't, uh, no longer do most men, I believe, uh, no longer do most men feel like, uh, the, the legal framework in which we swim mm-hmm. would, would have your back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have, a and I, I've seen, you know, with so many incidents, uh, you know, happening in, in New York city in particular, where, uh, a go-to comment, uh, from, from the right is often like, well, you voted for this. And it's like, well, well, no, when I was living there, I actually didn't vote for that. I actually <laughs> You're didn't. Right. Yeah. I actually believed in, I actually believe in self-defense. I actually believe that if, uh, you know, if a man is, uh, uh, you know, threatening others or, you know, using force that you can use force against that person. Um, right. So, at at so some point, some people need to be punched in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As simple as that. Yeah. It, it, it is unfortunately as simple as that when there is a uh, threat. And I believe that you have the right to carry. And if absolutely necessary, you have the right to brandish that. And if absolutely necessary, you have the right to use deadly force if you were confronted with such. There seems to be an underappreciation for just that point that you brought up, uh, for your right to live safely uh, and for your property to exist in in a safe environment. And I think that there are communities that have, uh, how do I say, underappreciated your property rights and your rights to safety and and the value that a police department can provide in that context. And at the same time, have overvalued, overappreciated, in my view, the extent to which we should be labeling people who are in difficult uh, economic dif- difficult financial situations as victims of society and therefore needed to be treated differently than anybody else. And I'm not a fan of labeling some class of people just because they're poor, uh, even if even if it's a matter of them being homeless, we do not give them uh, greater latitude in terms of committing crimes. I don't think that those dots connect. And I appreciate the fact that we don't want to over-prosecute. I'm all about that, and so are other police officers. But it is not over-prosecuting to say that shoplifting should remain illegal, should be prosecuted, ought to be stopped, and is the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, evil behavior that, that... that communities have a right to protect themselves from. And when your police department is working as it should, uh, it plays a major role in, in preventing crime, 
uh, even though it's not felonious, it's only misdemeanor crime, uh, you want your police department to work hard at protecting your your rights. Yeah, I, um, I remember uh, a while back I had uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Daniels on. He, his pen name is um, Theodore Darwin. Theodore Dalrymple. Um, so he writes uh, a lot for like uh, Tacky Magazine and, and City Journal. And for a while, he worked as a, a psychiatrist in a in a prison in England. And uh, one of the one of the people that it, that he was seeing was this woman who was in a uh, an abusive relationship where the boyfriend or husband or whatever would would come home and and, and beat the shit out of her. Um, yeah. And he, uh, you know, he was talking, you know, he was talking to her and, and she's like, well, you know, he, he's under a lot of pressure and he doesn't, he, sometimes he can't control himself and, you know, all this. And then he asked her this very simple question. He's like, well, would he hit you if I was in the room? And she said, no, he wouldn't. And it's like, well, there you go. It's sort of the, you know, these, these, these in incentives, uh, there it's like, you can get away with a lot of this shit if you're yeah. not being checked on it. And uh, right. if I, I just want to tell you one, uh, one short story about uh, uh, while, while I have you here. So uh, I'm from New York, uh, originally born in Queens, uh, went to college at NYU, lived yep. in the city for, uh, for most of my life. Right. And something that I used to notice on the subways in particular is that uh, the maniacs, uh, uh, would become maniacs at a certain stop. So there's sort of like these certain, like uh, these borders within the city where it's like, okay, you're kind of in what we would call the ghetto. You're not that you're not a maniac there. But then once you hit the more cosmopolitan region where it's, you know, mostly like white people, whatever, uh, then you'd become a maniac and start doing, you know, all the shit. And the idea, you know, the understanding was, okay, this sort of behavior, this maniac behavior isn't going to fly in your neighborhood. But it will fly, you know, downtown, you know, in a, or downtown, in a different place, in a different place. So <clears throat> my wife was pregnant with our first uh, with her first son and we were taking the subway to uh, to see her doctor. And then on the way back, we were, uh, you know, sort of at that at that border point. Uh, my wife was sitting down and then one of these guys uh, gets on. I think he had just, you know, had a visit at the methadone clinic, probably on 125th Street in Manhattan. And he sits down like next to my wife and I'm standing, uh, I'm standing in front of him on the, on the subway. And this guy, you know, we hit that, that demarcation line where you're allowed to be a, you know, you're allowed to be a maniac. He pulls out a, a plastic bag and he pulls out a, uh, a lighter and he attempts to light his plastic bag on fire, which uh, the purpose of that. What I, I don't know what the purpose of that right. is, but this once he pulled out that lighter and had his finger on it, I grabbed his hand and I spoke to him in Spanish, which he wasn't expecting. And I said, said to him in Spanish, my wife is pregnant. And I said it to him in. So there were there was there was no uncertainty that, right. dude, you keep fucking around. I'm going to fucking murder you. Right. Right. Now. And right. he was very. There, there is no extent to which I won't go to protect my family. Yeah. That's and, the and, signal. And he got it. And he got it. And he stopped yeah. being that 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 piece of shit, right? And uh, you know, now I feel like in my experience on 
on the subway, you know, since that that day over the years, there aren't these people aren't being checked on that, whether it's by police or by the, uh, you know, fellow strap hangers. And they go and they do this really, you know, the, the they uh, take part in bonkers behavior and make living yeah. living life terrible for people. And that, and yeah. there's something about um, uh, what I would like to push to with you know, for with, when it comes to libertarians, um, you know, talking about personal stories, I think is really important. Then also just talking about there is a I think there's a personal dignity to our the philosophy of libertarianism where yep. it's very much like, no, no, I'm not going to put up with this because I have self-respect and, and uh, you know, and, and I'm willing to I want others to have self-respect, too, and dignity in, in their lives. Right. So. Right. And uh, a respect for our neighbors. Sure. Our, our yep. neighbors, you know, uh, as a police officer, one thing you learn is that it's your job to protect the rights of people who hate your guts. Uh, we need to do a better job of aligning, in my view, we need to do a much better job of aligning the principles by which your police department works, the principles by which it is run with the underlying values, ethics, morals of the community. Uh, that is not to say that we are going to let off the hook the political leaders in the community from doing their job, which is to correctly understand the ethics and values and interests of their community. You know, if, if you were telling your police department uh, either go too far in one direction or go too far the other, that's on you. If you're telling your police department, stand down with regard to any misdemeanor crime, right? We're just not going to prosecute those. Uh, that's on you. That's a problem, right? That is misusing the tool that your police department can be and should be. Uh, and similarly, if you tell your police department, uh, you know, I want as close to a zero crime rate as possible, and I don't care what you do to achieve that, mm. right? I want you to go around cracking heads and make sure everyone knows there's a new sheriff in town. Well, that's not aligning with your, your community's values either. And that's misusing that tool that police departments uh, ought to be. And I think that uh, all too often political leaders uh, are not leaders. They, you know, misperceive their community's values and then they end up uh, trying to align themselves with some weird set of policy prescriptions on the left or, or on the right. And that's when things uh, go off the rails. And we've seen them go off the rails in, in either one of those uh, directions. So I think that we need to get back to the idea, as you put it, of not only self-respect, but respect for each other, respect for our communities. And I do not believe that you're showing respect for your police department when you're just not interested. I think that police reform is important. It's hard work and that it is uh, something that in the long run will serve the interests of police officers. I think that we need to hold police officers more accountable, both in terms of doing the right thing and in terms of not doing the wrong thing. In the long run, the business of policing by the way, just like the business of teaching in public schools and in private schools will be better when we find a way to get around police unions 
saying everyone's got to get paid the same, whether you do a good job or a crappy job, and get around the idea that uh, our local uh, politicians are not just not going to play a role in holding people accountable. We need to defeat uh, both of those uh, cultural problems. And I think that what they have in common is, like I say, local leaders not doing a good job and uh, public uh, employee unions really throwing up roadblocks and there not being enough competition. We need more competition for good police officers and good teachers. Uh, We need uh, both of those groups of people to be evaluated on their merit and for school districts and police departments to compete for the best employees. That'll drive up the wages of the good ones and make sure the bad ones uh, wind up uh, unemployed. So I'm a big believer in school choice, and I'm a big believer in the idea that we need our state laws changed so that local municipalities can replace not only individual officers more easily, but replace their entire police department if they need to. We need more competition for organizations to provide police services on a contractual basis. Where where I worked for the city that I worked for, they only had two choices. They could stick with the police department they had, for which I worked, or they could invite the sheriff's office in to provide police services. But those are really their only two choices. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need a situation where there's more competition. Well, Mike, uh, talking about competition, uh, the Libertarian Party presidential nominees, you have some competition here in Mike Termot. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And uh, uh, wherever you are, I hope the, the weather is beautiful. So it's looking pretty <laughs> it good gorgeous. out there right where I am. Happy summer uh, to you, Lou. Summer I, chilling. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm really proud of you for coming up with the idea of summer chilling. I think that that is a marvelous juxtaposition. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you, Mike.